This is a complex industry which needs really strongly skilled people, evidence-based progress step by step. Let's not you know, get distracted by a grand vision. Let's, let's take each of those steps well thought through, well executed. That builds confidence. People will stand back, chill out, let the professionals get on with the job. Uh, but we've got to, in effect, stand back from these massively big visions about transforming things. And it, it, yeah, it all sounds easy 50 years out, but the next year is the important year. Hello, welcome to Nousecast, a podcast from Nous Group. I'm Tim Orton, the founder and managing director of Nous. We're an award-winning Australian-owned management consulting firm, and this year, in 2019, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary. To mark this occasion, we've launched Beyond 2020, a series of events that will explore the big ideas shaping Australia's future, and we feature experts from Nous and some of the organisations with whom we work. You'll be able to catch each of these discussions right here on Nousecast. In the past decade, energy policy has been hotly contested in Australia, with the objectives of achieving an energy supply that is cheap, reliable and clean, pulling key players in different directions. Progress has been chaotic and at times glacial. In this episode, recorded at NAUS's Melbourne office in November, you'll hear from leading thinkers in the energy debate on how we can and should move forward, both in the short and longer term. We'll discuss the steps required to avoid an unpredictable and disruptive transmission to zero emissions, and how to seize the opportunity to become a global leader in renewable energy. The discussion you'll hear today features Audrey Zebelman. Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Energy Market Operator, Grant King, the former Chief Executive Officer of Origin Energy and former Chair of the Business Council of Australia, Richard Bolt, former Vice President of Strategy and Innovation at Swinburne University and former Secretary of the Victorian Department of Economic Development, Jobs, Transports and Regions, and my colleague, Simon Smith, who was previously the Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Industry. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Grant, can you kick off what's really big for you? And let's think about the whole energy market and let's think globally for a start and we might bring it back to Australia. Well, firstly, thanks, Tim, for the invitation and to be part of a very distinguished panel, so I look forward to having this discussion with my colleagues. Um, the big picture view of energy in Australia has to start, in my view, at the production end, at the resource end. So we have this incredible resource endowment. I won't go through it. Probably oil is about the only thing missing from the slate, including minerals like lithium and vanadium. You, know, you take a long-term view of the future. The question is, what do we do with it? Uh, we export today about four times as much energy as we consume locally. So the first part of the answer to your question is we're fundamentally an energy exporting nation and what's happening with exports is the first part of that big picture story. Uh, I've not seen any forecast that doesn't still have the world consuming large amounts of coal and natural gas in 2040. Uh, so I, first thing I expect to see is Australia will continue to be a significant exporter of coal, particularly metallurgical coal, if you're happy to include that as energy, but met coal, thermal coal, Natural gas, recent IEA forecasts had natural gas uh, production in Australia doubling, or LNG exports doubling over the next 20 years by 2040. I struggle a bit with that, but, but whether it goes up 50% you know, or 100, it's still a, a significant increase. Um, if we go down through the slate, um, there's clearly opportunities in, in, in minerals like lithium, for example, but the one I want to talk about is uranium because essentially our third largest uh, energy endowment is uranium. Uh, when I look at world balances of energy, Uranium is the third largest fuel for power generation in the world. 
what people are beginning to realise is that the retirement of the nuclear fleet in the Western world will come at the expense of uh, reduction in carbon emissions. And when you project... Uh, so the carbon emissions will go up as we reduce... It Europe. depends on the rate, but bearing in mind that solar and wind is barely even shows on world energy balances. I mean, the rate of growth is huge, but it hardly shows on world energy balances. Even the massive projection of uptake of solar and wind uh, would, from an emissions reduction point of view, be offset by reduction, planned reductions in nuclear. And even people in the green community are beginning to understand that. And I often use a society in Diablo Canyon, which was bitterly opposed by the Greens 30 years ago when it was built, and for which it has been bitterly opposed to be closed, uh, because the, the closure of the nuclear fleet is shutting down or, or, or working against emissions reduction. The point there is that I also expect in 20 years that Australia will, or could be if it so chose to be, a substantial supporter, exporter of uranium as well, and add that to the slate. To do that, I believe Australia should see the whole cycle. So I actually think Australia has to come to grips with, um, I'll say, sequestering uh, uranium, but effectively um, yeah, accepting back the, the products of uranium production. Yeah, and we have to, as a country, be mature enough to have that debate, I think, and it's currently on the table at the moment. So I, I see those uh, uh, at an export level being the key issues. Um, we will still be a major energy exporter. Uh, from a GDP point of view, iron ore, coal, natural gas, uh, education, tourism. They're the five major contributors to Australian GDP. I struggle to conceive a country that generates the wealth and the standard of living without energy being at the centre of that position. So I think you've got to start with exports, actually, and production. And often that export picture is quite, quite contrary to what we're expecting to happen domestically. Uh, domestically, firstly, quick comment on transport. Uh, I've heard this quote more often than not because it's the favourite quote of the month, which is Bill Gates saying we, we overestimate what's going to happen in two years and underestimate what's going to happen in ten. Uh, I do think in a 20-year time frame there will be a massive take-up of electric vehicles. I think the rate uh, of development in terms of refuelling, charging, batteries, etc., cetera, uh, cost curves are all working in favour of very significant take-up in uh, electricity as a transport fuel. That will obviously have implications for the way we produce and consume energy. Finally then to stationary energy or you know, more so electricity, um, you know, clearly very difficult today to see what the way forward might look like. Um, I, I do expect that the coal fleet will retire largely over that period. Um, oh, and 2050? 2040. We were briefed on 20 years. You said, look, right, right. you added 40 years in your introductory comments, but I'm staying at 20. Okay, good. Um, but I, I think a substantial amount of the coal fleet you know, will, will retire by that time, and that has huge implications for a lot of technical issues I'm sure will get covered later on in terms of grid stability and other things. Uh, clearly, uh, renewables will play a very significant role. I expect gas to play a bigger role for longer than people might imagine. Uh, I can't see how we create um, stable, yeah, to have high take-ups of renewables yep. without stable, uh, the stability that gas can provide. And it follows for me logically, and I should go back to the point about nuclear, that if nuclear is to continue to play a role, we should also expect that the technology development and learning curves in nuclear are as powerful as they are in renewables, absolutely as powerful. Uh, and that's often left oh, so out of... So it could become more affordable and more manageable? Well, I believe there will be a new generation of renewable, of, of nuclear technologies, particularly around small modular reactors. And if it's good enough for the rest of the world, I think there is a scenario where small modular reactors actually replace a fair amount of the coal fleet, uh, if you take a 20-year view, and provide the stable uh, underpinning we need. Now, that's a challenging view because we do not have a regulatory framework for that to happen yet. And so you keep going back into the cycle as to what needs to happen, and we need a hell of a lot of change in those regulatory frameworks. We need a much stronger national agreement, if you like, about where we want our energy sector to get to. Uh, my final point is that uh, in respect of um, the trilemma is a common word now that everybody loves to use, reliability, sustainability and um, affordability. I don't agree with that because I think reliability is paramount. It sits above all other things. 
and it is not subordinated to the other two in any way, shape or form. In all my life in the energy industry, I have not seen anybody willing to contemplate an unreliable supply of power. I think, Audrey, you or someone is presiding over a review of the reliability standard. I don't expect that it will be reduced. Um, I'd be staggered if it gets reduced. And that will only evidence um, the value that people put on a reliable system. So it is only, if you like, a policy dilemma between affordability and sustainability and the rate at which we evolve our systems, because I do not believe this country will sacrifice reliability in terms of supply. That will sit above all others as a precondition to striking a balance on the other two. Uh, the final point is that you know, our that's, electricity That's three sector, final points, but you're doing well. Okay, good. Last one. The electricity <laughs> sector will achieve its share of a 26 to 28% target by 2022, probably is the current view. I don't know if people have a different view. 2022, 23. Right. So the big debate is, is it got to do the heavy lifting for the rest of the economy? Right. And that's a real issue for people to talk about because um, it's not as easy as we thought. Right. Everybody thought it was easy. So will energy, does energy have to do all the heavy lifting for yeah. carbon reduction? So Richard, what, what would you add to that? And then we might, Audrey, we'll, start, we'll push it around a bit. Well, so I'd start by saying, um, if you look 100 years ahead, because it's important to think about 100 years or 20 years in the context of 100, then uh, given uh, just the inevitability of, of increases in the marginal cost of recovering depletable resources, we're going to be essentially largely renewable. If we're nuclear in 100 years' time significantly, we'll be into the plutonium fuel cycle, which is the best way to make the best use of that commodity, and that's a pretty dangerous and risky place to be. Um, looking back from 100 to 20, uh, I, would, I would agree there's still going to be a large dependence on fossil fuels. There's going to be much more of a frame of decarbonisation on their use, and what we'll see is the transitional uses will become more carbon friendly, even though the, the, the commodity itself will be heavily traded. Um, I agree also on uranium. Uh, on the point about reliability in passing, I'd say that people's expectations of reliability have, have risen. Our understanding, or our exposure to even things like uh, petrol rationing and major gas plant outages and uh, a huge failure to the power system, we have become so acclimatised and our entire industrial system is so dependent upon an ultra-reliable supply that if anything the value of reliability is going up. It's not actually just standing still. So on that point I agree it is paramount. It is the essence of a civilisation in modern terms, expressed in modern terms. So then what else will be in the mix is the question. Um, I, um, I think if you look at all of the decarbonisation challenges that we haven't got answers for in electricity, and that's where nuclear runs out of puff as well, uh, they would include things like steel making, cement making, heavy transport, air transport, shipping. All of those seem to have only one, they're susceptible to one basic answer above all others at the moment that I can see, and that is hydrogen. Um, and I think, in fact, hydrogen is going to have to be accommodated in the system beyond 20 years. It'll build up, you know, 20 years it'll be getting going. 30 and 40 years it'll be a serious contributor. And it'll be driven by recognition in the Northern Hemisphere that for those who thought decarbonisation was a great idea, they thought they could do it with their own resources, they're now waking up to the fact that they're actually going to be, there's going to be a global trade in low or zero carbon fuels. And if there isn't, we won't get there. Um, Japan is thinking that way, Korea, China increasingly, as I understand it, though I'm less familiar with their policies on this, Germany certainly is, and, uh, and to me uh, that means that Australia has to look at its energy system as a zero carbon export growth opportunity, uranium fits that bill, 
but so too does hydrogen from an increasing renewable surplus and with some interim contribution for fossil energy with CCS. So you're pretty optimistic about the technology to make hydrogen? Uh, I'd, no, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm sitting here predicting a glowing future with known price points all being competitive, right? So it's far too early to say that. What I am seeing worldwide is a real recognition that this is an, an almost unavoidable game uh, uh, opportunity, game-changing opportunity. Um, and, uh, and we, I mean, the, the growth in the debate about it will eventually moderate as people deal with the realities of its cost and of its, uh, its issues with its transportability and so on. Um, but I do think it will still persist as a, as a pretty major export growth opportunity. It won't be getting huge volumes in 2040. Right. But by 2050, it'll be more serious contributor. Looking forward beyond that to the second half of the century, I don't know how else we're going to do it. Either that or we abandon the decarbonisation objective. Right. Audrey, you're keen to come in on this. Yeah, a couple of things. One, one is um, I think that, you know, in, in particularly in northern climates, you know, one of the things that people are talking about is they think about decarbonisation is the fact that as hard as it is to think about decarbonising the electric sector, it's going to be much harder to decarbonize the heating sector, something we don't spend a lot of time thinking about here, but is thought about a lot. And so they think of hydrogen as, as a very critical feature for them to, for heating, to be able to decarbonize, you know, green gas. And so, and so I don't think we, sh we can underestimate the impact that Australia can have if we can create a hydrogen export economy using green electrons. Uh, in terms of where the rest of the world might want to go in, in, in thinking about how they're going to decarbonize because, and I think this comes out of the hydrogen review, you have countries like Japan and Korea, they just don't have the land to put in wind and solar and things like that. They're going to be very dependent on import fuels and a green import fuel that we could produce would be very valuable to them and I, and I think that's why we have to be thinking, thinking in, in those terms. Just going back to what Grant said, and, and so when I was in the United States, I ran about 20% of the nuclear fleet in the United States. And one of the things that happened in the nuclear industry in the last decade was around the fact that, uh, you know, as the, particularly in the US, because gas became so cheap, the nuclear plants started to have a really difficult time to compete with gas. It wasn't, re it's not renewables at all, it's, it's just gas. But what Grant is saying is really true. When, you know, when I, when I started out in the industry in the 80s, People who were anti-nuclear were people who were environmentalists, and they were very worried about the issue around um, you know, the spent fuel issues. What's happened, though, is there's been a change in, the, in, in uh, certainly in terms of the people who agitate or advocate or get engaged in energy debates, in that now, actually, they're much, people are much more comfortable with the technology and they're more worried about emissions than they are about spent fuel. They, they assume that technology will take care of that. And so there, it's a really, it was very interesting to me because when I was in New York, we had a major issue. We had three nuclear plants that had to retire and because they weren't economically viable. And we gave them a subsidy um, to make sure that they can continue to operate during the, to the end of their technical lives because we recognized if those plants retired, the two, 20 billion that New York had spent to reduce emissions would be gone overnight because they would all be replaced with gas. And so I think this, this issue around the role of nuclear in the future is alive and well because our, people are thinking about it. The issue, I think, is the dichotomy and is, is really the complexity of this energy industry right now. We have people who can build 600 megawatts solar farms and wind farms in less than 18 months from beginning to end. 
it takes 12 years to build a nuclear plant. And so you have this massive dichotomy, and we have this other issue. Would that of be course, true of the modular ones? That... Well, they could be shorter, but you're yeah, still in this issue around who's taking risk. But they don't exist yet. Right. And, and so that's, that's why the nuclear owners in the U.S. have said that they will never do it. They, they, they're trying to sell their plants if they're in open markets. So we have to start thinking about the frameworks for the energy industry being very different going forward. There are going to be... Uh, resources that could be built with a lot of merchant risk, but there's going to be other resources that have to be built if we're going to get them built in a very different regulatory governmental. And it's sort of like that ability to keep two thoughts in your mind at once, which sometimes is very difficult, that we, we need to think about because they're, they're very different technologies, they have very different risk profiles, and they could serve the needs. But then the question for us in any economy, any, any government right now, is we design these governments, these, these markets to be very homogenous because they were designed around very homogenous type technology. Now we have very different technologies, and so we have to start thinking about the business model and the regulatory model to deal with, a very, to deal with very different asset classes. So can I just hold that thought of how we're going to achieve this? Simon, so you and I have talked about energy. We've been very focused on the consumer. So appropriate that you and Grant are at opposite ends because he said, let's start with a production source. Yeah. Yeah. Well, will consumers be any different? We've talked about them wanting higher reliability, so that's a difference. Yeah. Are there other differences looking at that you see? Yeah, I think so. So thinking about if you compare what new, the way news used to be communicated in the world, you had the, just a few channels all one way. You know, maybe you could write a letter to the paper and maybe they'd publish it if you were lucky. And you compare that to now, the internet, everyone has a voice. There's, you know, multilateral conversations going on all over the place. Everyone involved in a very different way. I mean, I just think the energy market's an analogy for that. It was used to be small number of large generating sets and people were all receivers of all of that energy. And now we're seeing that the technology is just undermining that model completely. And I imagine not only um, many more consumers being producers of power locally, some of them wanting to pull up the drawbridge and be independent of a system they feel doesn't serve them or is too expensive for them, um, but also far greater electrification of many more things in life, so transport, but electrical controls, all through industry, um, using the internet to control all that stuff, like a much more interactive market in the future, quite, quite different, and people having much more of a stake in it as well. Yeah, if I, let me just add to that because I was just responding. I do think, I mean, one of the things that I think is really just the most um, you know, sort of evident aspect of Australia is, that, is the growth in rooftop solar. And so we, ha we have portions uh, of the country right now in Western Australia and, South and, South and, and in SA where we're truly world leading in terms of the uptake of rooftop solar. And um, I think, you know, very much like every other technology innovation, what's happening is, is that people in Australia are beginning to think of rooftop solar as the norm. It's not unusual. It's not someone else's. So, but are we leading edge or bleeding edge on this? Are we so far out there that we're not quite sure what will happen? Well, I think what's <laughs> happening is what we're recognizing right now is, is that, you know, we're, we're running into... We AEMO are running into technical challenges associated with the fact that the power system was not designed for this type of resource. And so now for the first time, you know, it's one thing for us to tell AGL or uh, a large vendor, look, at your, or a large developer, you're not gonna be able to use your asset the way you want to. It's one thing for politicians to be able to say to people who've invested in rooftop solar, I'm really sorry, I know you just put that money in, but we're not gonna allow you to use it. That's just not gonna happen. 
And so what's, what we need to do as an industry is figure out how to accommodate that new resource in a way that gets the value to the consumer. So if we were to build- Is that build, an engineering challenge primarily? It's, it's an engineering challenge. It's also a business model challenge. I mean, I, you know, right now, um, the best way to manage rooftop solar is with storage um, at grid scale that could be firmed at the edge of the system but nobody can make a business model around that because our, our, our uh, markets and regulatory regime wasn't really don't accommodate it well. So we just have to get on with those pieces of it. And I think the you know, recognition is, is that more and more we expect 30 to 40% penetration of throughout the, of, rooftop, of, of distributed energy resources and electric vehicles writ large across the country, which is right. really changing the complexity, of the, both the complexity and, um, of the system and the, and the structure. Right. Just before we dive further down into that issue, can I just go back to the big picture? We've been a big exporter of coal and um, gas up on the Northwest Shelf. Just as a share of the economy, if we could get into hydrogen, is, are we gonna, is it going to be bigger? Or as fossil fuels run down, will our exports of energy decline relative to our economy? What's your thoughts? Uh, well, I can't quote the number, but I recall talking to somebody that for hydrogen to replicate LNG exports would be a staggeringly big number. Someone told me the megawatts in solar, it's a staggeringly big number. Right. Staggeringly big. Yeah, yeah, I don't know huge. where anybody like, has got the number, but it's a staggeringly big number. So Audrey and I were at a conference last week, and the figure, the, the substitution figure was at sort of 2,000% renewable target. Now, bearing in mind the original mandatory renewable energy target, the Commonwealth one in 2000 had a 2% target from memory. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong. So to go from that to 2,000% is no walk in the park. Right. And uh, whether it ends up that or something different, the point I'd make, if you accept zero so carbon... Correct. And, and it also means that the contribution of rooftop solar will be completely put in the shade, pardon the expression, by, uh, by what would have to be mass production. Yeah, that's right, it's my best. By mass production of both wind and, and solar to produce the kind of green electricity that will produce the hydrogen in turn. The thing about... Um, so can I just check then, does that mean rooftop solar is going to be a small amount of energy, but gosh, it's going to be hard to... It's just a huge transaction cost. It's a living nightmare for Audrey and not much value compared to what we can get from mass scale. You know, the best solar resources in the country are where the roofs of Australia are not. And, and it's just a, a profound inefficiency looked at through traditional economic lenses to put them here. But it's also seen as an act of personal empowerment, which is to some degree, in my view, almost distracting people from the bigger contribution they could be making to the, to the stability of the energy grid and the way they use their which, energy. Which is an interesting thing, I think, is what's going to happen. So one of the things that's, that uh, the trends that are starting to people have, think about here and I think um, could, could actually supplant the rooftop solar is community solar because the, the idea is this, is we've got a lot of people live right over there. They don't have roofs. And so the question is, are they going to be left out of the equation or can we put solar where it should belong, where you have sort of larger scale solar projects and then they own a, a piece of it and it's a lot more efficient and then suddenly people realize they don't have to put it on their roof to, to actually feel empowered. And, I, and I, that's the innovation I expect. So we could end up with level. a more distributed energy system, but not the rooftop solar model. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. But see, people can invest in that too. I, I right. like empowered, by the way. That's so right. if my yeah. shade and you're empowered, I think yeah. we're doing well here. So the third, the <laughs> prize goes to the third metaphor. Right. Yeah. But I actually think, look, thinking, without wanting to be too technical, thinking about Victoria, what are our big resources? Solar is not actually one of them. 
But offshore wind is massive and it's coming down in cost in other places. We have got 4,000 megawatts available to us, which adjusting for when the wind blows and doesn't is equivalent to Luoyang power station, right? So the biggest single coal-fired power station in the state would effectively be replaced by a large-scale development in offshore wind off Gippsland, which would also, incidentally, help provide some construction job offsets to the losses and economic boost to the losses when Luoyang eventually closes in the 2040s or so. So I think we've got to, we've got to think broadly. And community solar, I'm, I'm more of a sceptic, I have to admit this, because in the end, I think the economics will actually have a big thing to say about this. And people can invest in these things. They can take equity, they can take shares. They don't have to actually see it. It might be somewhere else, but they can still actually be part of it. And if you're talking an export industry of that size, that's where the capital of Australia and a huge amount of capital from the world will go. It's, it's just a different, it's a different way of thinking about it. This is not going to be a cottage industry. Okay, just one last thing before we move on to how do we achieve this. Views on batteries. And Grant, you were quoting a very large battery in China. Look, I'm fundamentally a, an in front of the leader person when it comes to batteries. We need large grid, grid embedded batteries to deal with what So not batteries in your garage, inside. but batteries over I think in batteries, the I want to put transport aside for a minute, you know, batteries in cars. But I think in the short term, batteries in homes are just dealing with a, a lack of progress in terms of how energy is priced and um, how energy is bid in and out of the system. And there's an arbitrage there, put a battery in, you'll capture it, but I think it'll be a poor investment. My, my view is, you know, behind the metre battery. To me, batteries is about in front of the metre, and I right. think that the lithium-ion battery, which is really developed for the automotive sector, and which is going in behind the metre, is not the solution, in my view, to embedded right. batteries. They have a diseconomy of scale. So Mr Musk is done for? Well, no, no, because there'll be a hell of a lot of batteries in motor vehicles, if you believe the motor vehicle story. And right. then that becomes the other question. I mean, yep. One view is that, of course, the battery will be the motor vehicle. But that's a little bit problematic because the charge rates at 240 volts aren't great. And there's a question about just what it does to the load profile, you know, just in, in reality. So mm -hmm. it's not absolutely clear that will be the, well, the I, battery. Yeah. I actually you could think about, and this is where you can have complementary, um, uh, you know, uh, industries. I mean, in the afternoon right now, we're desperate for people to charge their batteries. So I could easily see, you know, a smart charger. So you have too little demand at the moment. We have too little demand, and so the idea would be to to actually pay people to charge their batteries in the afternoon, or chart, or pay businesses. Businesses right. get an electric credit. Okay, all right. But are batteries going to be? Are they going to be able to smooth things out? Are they of a scale that could do so? You talk about flow batteries, Grant, or Audrey? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that batteries will play a. a a very significant role in, in the industry going forward in different ways. One is, you know, uh, one of the things that we have to do is manage the grid is, is be able to respond in, in milliseconds. What we've discovered is that batteries are actually one really good way because they can operate very quickly. And so that becomes a way to make uh, easier, frankly, for the older plants to operate because they're not being asked to increase and decrease at the speed that, that makes it difficult for them. So I think there's a, it's complementary. I think then there could be flow batteries could deal with other things. So when we, we look at it, we need storage in the, for minutes, seconds. We need storage that works over a week. We need storage that works over a season. You know, one of the things that one of my um, employees is analyzing is what we're going to do in the 2028 solar eclipse in Australia. So we do have to think about these things because right. it's, it's going to happen. Right. Okay. Good. So batteries will be part of it as well. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm more of a, I'm, I'm probably erring on the side of the battery sceptic of the, of, the, of the team here because I think that they have to an extent been oversold. 
they do have a role, I can, and Audrey knows that far better than I do. So the grid, for those who don't sort of consume power system management for a living, is a really delicately balanced thing, right? It's, it has to synchronise to down to the millisecond across thousands of kilometres from South Australia to Queensland, in the case of the, the, the eastern grid. And it's highly susceptible to perturbations that can cause the whole thing to fall apart and, uh, and Audrey think, well, why should I be in Australia uh, anymore, right? So that's the kind of problem we've got with the... the Alan grid. Jones kind of wants me to go back anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't want you to, Audrey. <laughs> I don't want you to. But the point then is that, that when batteries can do is provide seconds and you know, rapid bursts of, of, uh, of energy that can help stabilise it at moments of crisis and turbulence, and there'll be more of those as we get more variable renewables. But the seasonal problem is totally different. Okay? So if you're thinking about somebody who was telling me this from some country, I think it was in the US, is saying two weeks of calm weather in the US, and if you add to that a lot of shade, cloudy, calm weather, uh, you can have a renewable system, you can have a battery system dependent upon the power from the renewables to charge it, and they're both dead, and you've got nothing, and Grant's point about reliability kicks in here, that is, that is civilization come to an end. So we actually need to have storage systems that are independent of the very thing they're there to back up. And that's why it's going to have to be a different technology, and generally speaking, something made of gas that is portable, that meets multiple uses, is going to be much more likely to work than the battery solution. Now the fly batteries, which is now we're getting into technological debates, which, which Grant knows more about than I do and probably Audrey does, may be more of a game changer, but the lithium-ion battery is thoroughly oversold and Elon Musk deserves to be pilloried for it. Okay, can last I, comment, Audrey, because we're going to move on. Yeah, okay, just, can I just, one of the things that Grant mentioned is gas. So one of, one of the things that's not happening here, which actually is interested in other markets, is fuel cells gas-fired fuel cells and hydrogen fuel cells. So there's, they're, they're also a great form of storage that can be compact. Okay. So, so Simon, you get the unenviable task, because you're not the guest, you're the one of the, of saying, what can we learn about the last 20 years that would help us in the next 20 years? Yeah, well, it's kind of so obvious, isn't it? Like everyone's talking about all of these new technologies. We No one really knows which ones will be successful for which purposes at what price. Like, the big lesson is that we've had an inflexible framework that hasn't allowed for encouraged innovation, experimentation, new, new technologies, new business models. I mean, it's only changing a lot now because the prices of the new technologies are so much lower than the incumbent technologies that it's impossible to ignore. So the lesson is this: we've had a, a way overly complex governance arrangement for energy markets in itself you know like we started making a, we went from an engineering culture centrally planned vertically integrated monopolies and said well we don't want that anymore we want markets and we only went about a third of the way of actually going to that market framework we didn't finish that job because we didn't really deal with transmission we didn't really prepare ourselves for new technologies like it just wasn't done so the lesson is we need much more sophisticated but simpler and nimble um, governance arrangements so that all these new technologies compete on their merits right. and each find their place in the energy mix. Okay. Other views? Grant, you've been... Well, yeah, I mean... Because you, in it, a sense, as a head of origin, you yeah. were subject to these governance yeah. structures. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not... <laughs> so my, my observation on governance is great governance doesn't work if there's poor leadership. And I think... But I think Simon's talking about the governance of the system rather than governance of organisations. Yeah, but I, I think that still holds. Um, I mean, I think that, that I don't think COAG is working. I think the federal-state divide is, is a problem. Um, and it is a very common thing to bring up, to, to blame our politicians for that. 
Uh, I think the reality is the community, let alone the industry, is also divided about what good looks like. And until there's some reconciliation at a community level about what good looks like, we're, we're still going to struggle to make progress. And we can do whatever we like to governance, but it won't get us there. Well, so there's still these big schisms in the community. Um, my two bob, because there's many ways of answering your first question about you know, looking back, and I don't want to dwell on the past too much. But I think one of the great truths is what gets measured is critical. And I think one of the things we allowed ourselves to do is, is and I'll pick two measures which just totally define wrong the problem. Uh, one is that progress is linear, uh, and that we should never pro measure progress on a linear basis. And I've not seen any technology or any change occur on a linear basis. It's, it's nearly always exponential. And so our expectations about the rate of change, you know, too much in the short term, not enough in the long term. So I'm a great optimist. We'll actually achieve the sorts of targets we want to as a world. Right. But so it will you, be we've just been going through the flat bit at the moment, have we? None, well, we're on the flat bit, but you know, experience tells us that those flat bits, you hit that takeoff point and right. then change is very rapid. And I still think we're on the flat part. The other is that we, we allow the measure of progress to be production based and not consumption based. So on a global basis, it is fundamentally disadvantageous to Australia to measure progress on the basis of production because we are an economy that produces for the world and we are and particularly, particularly production per capita and we're fundamentally disadvantaged by those measures. So the public debate continually gets defined in terms of failure. Right, so we're, fact, we're seen to be a high carbon economy. Yeah, the fact of the matter is we, we have renewable levels higher than just about any country in the world. Great outcome. We have in the sophistication of some of our agencies and their capacity to manage the system, even though it sounds like we're struggling, we are way ahead of many places right, in so the world. So everyone's coming over to see how EMA is yeah, well, doing this. The experiment's thing. happening here, right. but, but there's great regard globally for the lessons that have been learnt here in terms of the Emissions Reduction Fund and the technology of measuring emissions reduction. Australia is held to be quite a world leader in that respect. Right. So there's much that we could celebrate our progress, but we're locked in the discussion about we're not making progress. And I think that community divide is a real problem because we're not getting agreement at a community level. Having sat through ministerial council meetings on energy many times, um, I just think the energy sector is inherently complex and it's systemically important to every Australian and putting it in the hands of um, a, a group of men and women who are not energy people and who come and go very frequently, it, it's, just, it's just not the right way to try to run these things. Like We don't try to run our currency like that. We, have, we elect people to choose and they get to set the macro objectives about how we manage our currency, but then we have some expert people who... who implement those goals and we've just got a plethora of different venues and, and institutions and states who never really let go uh, Commonwealth who hasn't really picked it up um, very messy so looking forward what would we change how do, so how do we move to this energy future that we've described who wants to kick into that one it's a difficult it's a difficult question to answer but it's got very, there are various parts to it first of all um, I think way back in the, in the formative years of energy policy, the market was king, despite uh, perhaps the whole thing wasn't done. A lot was done and it was pretty successful, right? It actually did a great deal to drive efficiency through the energy sector that had, that had become bloated over time. Um, and for the energy sector, it was a design But it was designed for a different capital task than the one we've got now. So one of the things we've got now is a very large rate of investment, and a lot of that investment has to be tightly synchronised and coordinated, which is not a case for central overriding planning, but it is a case for uh, investments to be choreographed so that they add up to a coherent whole. Just think about taking... Sorry, can I just quantify that number? I think, Audrey, you said $400 billion over the next... Over the, ne over the next um, 20 years. So 20 uh, years, so $20 billion a year. I mean, it's a lot of money. 
when those coal plants retire. So that's, that's a about lot the amount of we spend on defence each year. And that's not even taking into account growth and exports of new commodities, right? So you add that to the mix and the transmission infrastructure and the shipping infrastructure and everything else. Plus you've got a huge amount of investment in new trucks and buses and, and, uh, and shipping, uh, just generally for general use, uh, as well as household appliances. You add all that investment up and you're talking about a massive capital project. Not all of that can be centrally coordinated. Most of it will be technology takers from, the, from, from uh, northern hemisphere markets. But the one thing about the central grid is that there has to be a new partnership and, and, and a spirit of collaboration with a lot of competition and options in it between the private and the public spheres to get that balance right so that when we exit a coal-fired power station, we don't run the gauntlet of a potential supply shortfall, for example. And there's many other examples of that kind. I think the complexity of that task is just going to demand people to work together even as they vigorously debate what the right thing is to do. And that is anathema to a, a view that, that came in which said at a time when we had almost no capital projects to do at all, that we could just do the whole thing with competition. We need competition within collaboration. That is going to embrace, that, that is going to have to involve a dialogue with the community to set our objectives and to in fact explain how this is going to be done and to take them on the journey. You know, I've, I've run the, and I was just talking to Paul Fearon about this, just the smart meter program, or Paul's now got the, what is it, the uh, rapid earth fault carrying limit problem, and we won't talk about what those technologies are, but just single technology rollouts can cause massive community backlash, really difficult political problems to manage. We are now talking about doing that on a, on a very large scale. Many different technologies, lifestyle changes, you know, things you can't impose on people, things you have to take people on the journey to do, uh, there's got to be social consensus. That is a dialogue that is nowhere near happening. And I think without some kind of very respectful and widespread community debate, discussion, in which you bring facts to the table, in which you present options, and eventually over a period of decades you reach some kind of consensus, that's the scale of the challenge. Audrey. There's a couple dimensions to realise is that as we're replacing thermal resources, if we're going to replace them with renewables, the scale of land use that we're going to have to use is, is huge. Scale of land use. Use. And so, you know, our calculation, you know, we're about 50,000, 55,000 megawatts. So it's, it's north of 90,000 megawatts just to replace it. But if you think about, you know, the size of land you need to do, so the idea that you could do this without some sort of planning, land use planning and community planning along with system planning is, is naive because it's a lot of land, even for Australia. The other thing is if you don't do it, you, you end up stranding a lot of investments. One of the issues that we're dealing with right now is, is that a, there are a lot of wind farms uh, and now solar farms going into western Victoria where we don't have transmission. And so people are making big bets on investment and are finding themselves, and we're seeing the same thing in Queensland, where they're being stranded. Why would they make those bets if they weren't sure? Because there's lack of transparency and our regulatory regime was is that you didn't have to pay for access to the power system. So people, so, and then the other thing is, is that quite frankly, is a lot of people are just speculating. You had a lot of banks coming in, they're building the plants and they're going to flip it. And, and so now then the new, new owners are coming in and they're finding that they're just not able to access the markets. So what's changing now is, is that, first, first of all, we are seeing increasingly um, this uh, community opposition to wind and solar. And, and so one of the things that we're concerned about is that we have to get ahead of it because a lot of communities are, are, you know, are saying, look, they don't want to have that much in their community. So we have to work with the governments to look at a combination of land use planning along with 
uh, you know, energy <coughs> planning. And then uh, we have to work with the developers. And so it, if, to say that you can't do that is, I mean, it's going to create expense. And one of the things that I'm, you know, very, I'm very keen on is for us to be thoughtful of the fact that 100 or 200 basis points, when you're talking about this level of investment in terms of perceived risk, has a very significant impact on price. And so for us not to be thinking about that kind of capital risk as part of what we want to do in the industry, I think, would be naive. So a long conversation, better clarity on yeah. the regulatory environment, other changes? Um, I, I think one other thing that, that we need to be thinking about, and Nino's in the back of the room, and it's something he and I have been talking about a lot, you know, I, you are, everyone's seen what's happening in California. And so the, the, in the terms of the, the bushfires, and of course we have that experience here. But one of my concerns is, is that the insurance market is starting to look at the risk in the energy industry in a very unfavorable way. And so, you know, for us, again, not only is an investment, but if we can't insure these assets, that, that creates a, a significant risk. So, that, so actually, the whole management of the energy sector is getting much more complicated for owners. So I was getting more optimistic in the early part of the discussion. Well, I am very optimistic. Now I'm getting very... But, but, but my, I think the point is, is that we can't be naive about how complex this is going to be. And we have to have the right governance structures and a clarity of thinking so that we're not wasting time and money. Well, Alan Finkel will say that he's very optimistic 50 years out and he's yeah. extremely pessimistic about next year. And that's, yeah. that's a little of what... That's the other version of the okay, case. We'll get there eventually. Yeah. That's not very reassuring. Yeah. Great. Well, look, my only comment here, and maybe I'm responding a little bit to Richard's comment as well, is that there is a significant... Well, sorry, there is a part of the community that demands transformational change. And that scares the Jesus out of everybody, you know, or a lot of people. And you can actually make a lot of progress through incremental... So we are where we are. I mean, you can't wind the clock back. We are where we are. Uh, there are many areas of improvement. And if we just focus on each of those areas of improvement and make a whole lot of continuous incremental change, it is remarkable how much you can transform a system. Right. But, but, you know, this continuous call for transformational change, the call for all, you know, carbon fuels to be eliminated by 2025, I, I just think is ridiculous. I have to say, that's ridiculous, and it ignores the complexity of the issues. But if we actually had a consensus around incremental, implementable changes, we actually would, we can go a long way quite quickly. Yeah, Tim, I just wanted to um, speak up for a sort of missing element in the whole debate about energy, which is about energy efficiency and energy productivity. So uh, years back, I went to California to see how they were approaching that, and they just had mainstreamed Could you just define it. what you're talking about for a moment? Yeah, so people get worked up about the price of power, but well, that's what they say, but they're actually worrying about the cost, like what is their total bill? And we haven't put, uh, I think Australia, we had a long period of very affordable power, and therefore we sort of take it for granted. And when the prices went up for various reasons, everyone kind of just, we didn't have a very strong energy services sector that would make it easy for people to find out how they would achieve the illumination, cooling, heating, motion, whatever it is they require, using less electrons. So I, I just think there's a lot, Australia performs poorly compared to other nations in its um, productivity, how much power we use to get the final outputs, and there's a lot more that could be done but, in that space. And can I just check, if we, we're continuing able to build things at a great rate and we have this huge energy surplus, you'd be a bit sort of pessimistic about the likelihood of us sorting that, wouldn't you? Well, there's definitely going to be growth in demand because we're going to try and do a lot more things with electricity than we don't do now. That, that's fine. But all I'm saying is that you think about, like, a, a light bulb used to use 100 watts and now it uses 
10 and the light, the illumination is just as good. So you think, well, there's all sorts of opportunities like that that we're not, we're not taking up. Well, can I comment on that? Because yeah, maybe we all want to have a comment on that one. And I'm going to sound quite contrary here. I've given this, made this comment many times. Yeah. Um, the, this question of energy efficiency, um, one of the mysteries is the, these MAC curves that everybody publishes. And these MAC curves show a lot of low cost of So what curves? These are the marginal cost of abatement curves. Right, that right. helps everyone. I'm surprised Thank that NAUS hasn't got one. You must, yeah. be, if you haven't, you've got to get your colleague to produce NAUS's version yep. of a MAC I was curve. actually doing it for the people yeah. who didn't understand Great. what you were talking about. And yeah, these curves show there's hundreds of, you know, potentially 100 million tonnes of abatement at zero or negative cost. Much of it through energy efficiency. Yep. And the question is, why isn't it not happening? Yep. And, and we've done that for 20 years. Be, yeah, it's because we've got a linear expectation. The reality is, people do not throw out perfectly good energy efficient appliances in lieu of taking a holiday. They will take a holiday. Right? And then when the appliance breaks, they'll put a high energy efficiency appliance in. And I think the public policy question is, why pay for that? It'll happen anyway. You know, the public right. policy... So you're saying we've got an installed stock so, of certain yeah. equipment... Yeah, and there's, a latency, there's a latency effect in this right. that is going to work its way through the system, yep. and that's why the curve is going to be exponential. And I'm dead against public policy that says pay people to bring these decisions forward. I, I don't know. think that's what Simon's saying, but I, I, I agree with you. I mean, if you take a look at every demand curve across the OECD... Despite the fact that you see economic growth, and we see this in our own planning, uh, you used to see economic growth meant higher demand. It's not because of both because of rooftop solar, but also efficiency. And it's just it is just going to continue to moderate. But one 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 other thing I wanted to add is is I think the other thing that's going to happen in the energy industry, very much like other um, economies, we're seeing like communications, we're going to be moving away from a commodity type pricing to more services pricing and more bundling with other services. And so I think what we'll see in the next iteration is that people will not necessarily, there are already companies doing this in Australia, you're not really buying electricity, you're buying services, the electricity just comes with it. And so- What sort of services are you, are you uh, seeing? You may be doing pool, pool, pool manage, pump management, you might be doing, I'll just come manage all your energy usage. A lot of energy services company, particularly in the CNI space, are coming in and, and people are outsourcing all of that. So I, I see that that, plus the fact that as we see more and more zero marginal costs or low marginal costs resources coming in, the price of the energy component of the bill, which used to be the biggest portion, I expect to shrink and other, other resources such as firming and other services will become more, more dominant. So I think those things will just change how people price it. Right. Can I check, in that world, will... Will reliability be continue to be the most important thing? And we were having a talk before this about um, is the climate change the issue today that civil rights was, for example, in the US? What's your view on that? Because in a sense, Grant, you've said climate change is important, but when it comes to the pinch, reliability is the one people are really going to be going back to. Where do you think in Australia at the moment the, the population is in terms of its enthusiasm for... I don't think I, I. I don't agree with the way you framed the question. That's not the trade-off. I mean, people will want both. They'll want both. Not, not. It's not a trade-off. They'll want reliability, and they will want to see progress on climate change. Go figure. You know, sort it out. They'll want both. That's my view. No, I totally agree with that. And I think that the the ethos of the country is heading much more towards the notion that we've got to do something about this, and that uh, the younger generations will demand it. But they'll demand a practical 
uh, you know, reliability-oriented, price-sensitive approach. They're not just going to want to have everything subordinated to one objective. We, we really have to meet them all. And reliability, I totally agree, is entirely paramount. But you don't, you don't say, because of reliability, I'm going to abandon a zero emissions target. But you've just got to find a pretty complex path towards it. And that's a minefield. And what about in the next five years? What are the, because you've said you know, in 50 years everything will be fine. <laughs> not sure we said that. Not terrible. Yeah. Grant, grant years. Granted. Yeah. <laughs> what, well, I'm, I'm actually optimistic. I actually, I am remarkably optimistic. If you were a minister for energy, if you were the CEO of a big energy business, what would the next five years would you be pushing particularly on? I'll tell you what we're pushing on. We, right. we are pushing on. So, so first of all, we, we, we do have to deal with the reliability issues, and we have to deal with the technical issues associated with the changing of the power system. That, that, that has to be absolutely critical. And, and actually, despite everything, I'm very optimistic because last week at the, that the COAG Energy Council did come to terms that there are a number of very quick things that we need to do in this, to, to secure reliability, to make the system secure, to focus on the integration of uh, rooftop solar, to start thinking about electric vehicles and how they're going to play in the system, and to start thinking about how we're going to deal with the retirement of coal plants. And so what, what's happening, I think, is I, I kind of think it's like, you know, they've just exhausted themselves with the emission debate. Nobody even wants to talk about it anymore, but they do want to get on with the things that they need to do to get prices down and make the system reliable, and I would say, and accommodate the transition in a much more effective way. So I, I think that that was a huge plus last week at the COAG Energy Council, and I feel very optimistic that you know, we'll, we'll be able to move forward. Okay, so Richard? So my view, um, now I'll be contrarian, um, and David Swift is somewhere in the audience um, uh, uh, helping the Energy Security Board uh, with its uh, post-2025 market review, and obviously Audrey's embedded within that too. Um, I actually think governments, the one thing I can see with all the interventions that are occurring by governments, which are being seen widely as, as often unhelpful um, and in, in many ways counterproductive, there is something there that is looking for proof positive that the capital will arrive at the right time. The train will get to the station on time and won't leave us stranded in our reliability requirements and at the same time meet our decarbonisation goals. And I don't think the market is designed for the rate of that. That was the point I was going to make earlier. I just don't think it does. Now, I don't want to revert to old-style central planning. I do think there needs to be more supervisory uh, reserve powers to make sure that the capital adds up to a coherent whole, that we get the closures and the replacement shandies of investments required to get us through the big hurdles of closing power stations and replacing them, not with one thing, but with multiple different investments in transmission, storage and renewables. And, uh, and to me, that the complexity of that task is one where you need more partnership and some reserve powers between the private and public spheres. And, and I would give Audrey more capacity to conduct the orchestra on that. Rather than have everyone come along and play their own instrument, I think there's, got to, there's going to have to be a song sheet somewhere. But, but can I, I, I agree with that. <laughs> but, yeah. but, Grant doesn't. <laughs> but, but the one thing, and I, I, don't, I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but we, we have had, um, we're having, you know, we're doing our own integrated system planning where we do the 20-year outlook. And the conversation we're having with the governments is asymmetric risk. 
I mean, the fact of the matter is if you're like, you say, well, that plant's going to retire in 2028, so I need to commission the transmission in 2027, and that'll make it work, is that if that plant falls over in 2026, that's catastrophic because you haven't planned ahead of time. So they are starting to recognize that we need to start getting ahead of these retirements. We can't wait for the retirements to occur and react. It's too expensive, and, and frankly, we've run out of reserves, so we have to deal with it. Okay, great. So, in terms of the question, next five years. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually think the most important question to answer is what do we expect, or how much of the bigger goal do we expect the energy sector to lift? Of the, um, of the so we have the, a national target of twenty six to twenty eight percent. If we expect the energy sector to lift its share, done, done and dusted. Yeah. Don't need to do anything. Already done by twenty twenty two, but everything's in place. The momentum's right. there. Yep. Uh, the, the election, there was a, a, an alternative proposal that the 26% reduction should be 45. We did analysis. If, if that was the target and energy was to lift us there, every coal, well, 90% of coal-fired capacity would need to be shut by 2030. can't see that happening. I, I just can't see that happening. So how much of the current target needs to be lifted by energy yep. is an awfully important discussion to have because if we have and a who target... Else, and who else should lift it? Well... So this is this is a very interesting question, and you probably don't want to open up a whole new discussion. But the 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 task well, is actually emissions. For energy to know how much. Yeah, but the, the the greater task is emissions reduction. That that's the greatest task that we're trying to deal with: emissions reduction. Yep. And emissions come right across the economy. Yep. And I think one of the mistakes we've made is to think it's easy to get there in energy, and it's bloody hard actually. It's not it's easy. To find energy more broadly to yeah. include transport, direct. And this is already yeah. familiar: direct industrial heat used, used yeah. in steelmaking, chemical processing. What you've got left after that is cows. Yeah. Okay. That's basically yeah. it. So. So I think the other side of the discussion, and I see a lot of this through the work we're doing on the uh, Emissions Reduction Fund, is that, and I think IEA was estimating by 2040 there needs to be 2 billion tonnes of sequestration. Now, most people will think that means carbon, you know, underground carbon storage, and it doesn't just mean that. And I don't think also we're doing enough work on that side, right. and we're doing enough work to ensure the fungibility of things. So two things that kind of annoy me, so here are my bugbears. One is um, flight shaming. Yeah, I mean, you can equip. What was that? Flight shaming. You know, if you take a aeroplane flight, you, you're destroying the world. Well, buy your offsets. You know, um, it's cheap. Uh, the number of people that buy... How many people have got electric vehicles in the audience? Actually, only one. I can only see one. Um, Wrong demographic. I'm sorry. I, I was talking to someone who just bought an electric car. They were very pleased they just bought an electric car. And I said, how many tonnes of carbon does your electric car emit? No idea. It's four tonnes a year. I can sell that to you for 60 bucks at the current clearing price right. of the ERF. I don't know why you need to spend 20 grand to buy an electric vehicle. So fungibility <laughs> is really critical. You know, Grant, like, like, at, at zero, yeah. there's no offsets anymore, right? So yeah. I agree in the transition to the right to the right answer. You might want to you, you might want to privilege yeah. certain investments over others because I'll get you there. Yeah. In a, so in response to you know, Tim's question, um, where does it have to come from? Yep. Uh, there's quite a long journey, and I think part of that journey has to involve additional technologies, not just energy related, yep. which are very much in the sequestration. And, you know, it's no surprise, again, you haven't asked this question, but if you look closely at how that emissions reduction fund is cleared, it is nearly all cleared in land use and agriculture at $15 a tonne. Um, you know, so there's very significant ways of getting us through. And so what do we expect from energy is a critical question in my view, and we just need the answer to that question. What's energy? And how much would you ask of energy then? Question for anyone. If 45% if would have shut down all the coal-fired power stations... For the whole economy. That's for yeah. the whole economy and energy. Yeah, yeah. That's the whole economy. How so. much more which should we be asking? Or is it going to happen anyway because of the, te the technology development? We have to start with the proposition that everything goes to zero. That's the global accord. 
you know, I, I know there'll be, there may be different views about that, that's my view, right? Everything's got a plan to go to zero. It's a question of how you get there, how quickly, and what kind of hair shirt of cost you wear in the meantime when you don't have mature technologies that in some cases can get you there very fast. So we have to divide the task up and pace it according to who can do what, um, at what sort of a pace. But in the end, we do need some plans here, unfortunately. This is going to sound terribly old school, but we've got to start sketching how we get from here to zero, sector by sector, region by region, use by use, and then work out of all of those things, what is the best thing to do? Now, if you could price it all and have the market clear it, that would be great. I don't think it's going to be that simple. So we have to do some, some, something a little in the, in the older style of doing some planning and some selecting of priorities. Uh, what are those priorities going to be? It's still going to come down to the electricity and gas sector doing a lot of heavy lifting in the next five years. But transport has to start getting really ready to be a serious contributor by 2030 onwards. Does that mean electric cars or it mean hydrogen well, driven? Or? If you look at half the auto executives, the auto executives of the world are split even for light transport between hydrogen and battery storage. And I'm not so convinced about batteries. I said before I'm a sceptic on them. I think that when you know that you're going to have to have a hydrogen fuel chain for trucks, for ships, for buses and for long distance trains, then you're going to have, you might as well use it for whatever else it can do, including cars. You, you can't use a, a rapid storage system, uh, charging system, for those other uses. And, and I think in the end it may well be that range and refuelling and the availability of the fuel generally means that hydrogen in the long run will probably win the day even for light transport. But we don't, we don't have to make that choice. Let's just, let's, you know, viva la, la competition, let them go. But the thing is, you get no real benefit out of, a char of an electric vehicle until you've got a zero carbon power supply. And at the moment there's a myth that if you buy one, you're actually doing something for the planet. You are not. And you won't be for another 40 years. It'd be better to buy the offsets, the four tons of offsets. Yeah, in addition to Richard's answer, and I'm comfortable with that, the rate of progress also has to be relative to what's happening in the global economy. So we all know that in the world of this, ETs are nearly always carved out. So emissions intensive trade exposed are nearly always carved out. And that's recognition that, that there is a, a, a prosperity question here. And so I do think the rate of our progress is in part defined by the rate of progress that's made in the rest of the world. Yeah. And I think that that needs to be something that's discussed in the Australian community and the right benchmarks put down there. Because yeah. I actually think, you know, much is made about, gee, Australia's making a miserable effort at 26 to 28%. I can mount an argument that's a bloody good effort that Australia's putting in. And we've had one of the most carbon efficient economies per unit of GDP in the world, but that's not the narrative. Yep. And so I think there has to be a relative part to that answer as okay, well. Okay, we're going to have a... Can, can I have a quick one on that? That's really important. Sorry, so one, you're going to, one. it's going to be your final comment, because then I'm going to get a final comment. And, and the reason I want to is that Grant thinks I disagree with him on everything, and I totally agree on that point and, and many others. The reason is partly just a practical reality. We will be technology takers. We are 25 million people, and industrialising economies with technology capability are more than a billion of people. So we are always going to be a taker. That's just numbers working, right? We'll be a resource exporter because that's our big advantage. So to decarbonise ahead of the world is a nonsensical proposition because we'll be, we'll, we won't have solutions. If they haven't actually been produced at scale in the Northern Hemisphere, they won't be available for us to decarbonise within the Southern Hemisphere. So we have to do this in sync. We have to adapt to the way the world is going, not just for So how do we end up reasons. ahead of them in the rooftop solar? Massive subsidies. Massive subsidies is the answer. Yeah, which, but, which is exactly, I think, I agree with Richard's point. I mean, if you, so the technology wasn't there, it was just the government no, subsidy China was. China was the one that produced the demand that drove the cost down. We didn't drive the cost down. We're too small a market. China did. Okay. They made it available. I'm going to ask us. each of you a final comment on what are, what's the thought you'd want to leave with the audience? So I think 
if in, the, in the next five years, it would be a great achievement if we could have a kind of settled path for total emission reduction and an orderly process of adjustment that people know that if we're not making it, then certain things will happen. If we are, then things will proceed as planned. That would be terrific. And I think a recognition that the national electricity market went was overly optimistic about the, the structures that it set up would, it, would be sufficient to adapt to all the changes that we're dealing with now. It was not. And, there, and I agree that there is a need to have more strong planning to create the right framework so that new technologies can, can be trialled and thrive. Good. Thank you. Who'd like to go next? Richard? No. Audrey? So I think, uh, first of all, I think we've hit the tipping point of the change in the industry. So I, I, don't, I hope no one you know, can seriously debate anymore that the, that the nature of the, the power industry in Australia is fundamentally changed and it's probably not going to go back. It's not going to go back. Right. Um, so we won't other, have another coal-fired power station. Well, I, I think it's going to be hard to drive the economies of that in Australia right now. The other piece that we have is, is just simply the fact that is, is that personal preference. Uh, I do think that more and more people are going to say, regardless of the subsidy or not, because the price of solar has come down so much, it, it becomes an economic thing for people to do, and it's, it's like buying a car. It's going to be that, that normal, and I think we'll see different business models where we don't even need to have folks put out capital outlay. They'll just, they'll, they'll just come on. The issue for us is, is right now, I think, is the critical piece is the next five years. And you know, one of the things that I've been, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, we all like to think about 2030, 2040, 2050. We, those of us in the industry, and I think we bear a huge responsibility on this, have to answer to people in 2025. We, we've got to start dealing with the affordability issues. We've got to start dealing with the reliability issues. We've got to make sure that the system is set up for success so that over the next decade, we energy, because it will remain an essential service, can drive positive economic outcome. So, so I, and I, I, we just simply don't have a choice in that matter because if we don't do that, and we continue to suffer unaffordability, and we continue to see things like people shuttering plants and, and, and really agitating, I think it'll be very difficult. And I think most politicians recognize this. They do not want energy to be a political issue over the next elections. I, I just think that's a bad idea to do that. Okay, good. Great. Um, I, I, I think that, a, that our first instinct is for a grand vision, but the reality is detailed execution. And my premise is that this is a complex industry which needs really strongly skilled people, evidence-based progress step by step. Let's not you know, get distracted by a grand vision. Let's, let's take each of those steps, well thought through, well executed. Yep. That builds confidence. People will stand back, chill out, let the professionals get on with the job. Uh, but we've got to, in effect, stand back from these massively big visions about transforming things. And it, it, yeah, it all sounds easy 50 years out, but the next year is the important year. And that's where we should focus. It's a sort of incremental evidence base, step by step. And so build a lot more confidence in the community that this is doable rather than otherwise. Which the political class is probably not helped with in the sense that they've created this either-or view of the world. Well, yeah. And there are those of us who think that the next three months are really critical too. (laughs) (laughs) What about tomorrow? And tomorrow. (laughs) And tonight. I'd, I'd love to see a plan that was, you know, good for 20 years or 50 years done in the next five. I think that's asking too much. So I do think we have to sketch the road, but the road has to be revisited because it won't be clear from the start. It'll take a long time to be clear. So sketch the road and make sure that the things we do choose, as Grant is saying, 
make sense against a range of possible things that might happen in the next 30 or 40, but don't get tied down by the idea that you're, you're aiming now to be at zero in 50 years' time because you won't know quite how you're going to get there. So I agree. So something adaptive is required. I do think we need to have a dialogue with our, with our community, if, and that requires a lot of people to put their time and effort into saying, what do you want to do? Clarify their choices, educate them increasingly as to what the facts of the matter are, where they can make a contribution, and encourage them to understand and feedback as to what they want to do much more. That might sound very wet and, and, and wishy-washy, but I actually think that's going to be required. It's that kind of a change. And, uh, and I think something in the market to, make, to put reliability absolutely beyond doubt, to have that ability to bring capacity in and out of the system in a coordinated way, largely determined by what the, what the market throws up as innovative and efficient solutions, but made a coherent whole by some brokering powers and ultimately some reserve powers in the hands of the market operator. I think that's a critical precondition for success and confidence, political confidence in the way the system evolves. I trust you enjoyed our panel discussion regarding the energy futures for Australia. In short, the panel argued that we can move to an affordable, reliable, low-carbon future, but that it will likely take three to four decades, will require that we continue with coal and gas in the near future and move to renewables, batteries and other forms of energy in the longer future. It will require leadership from all sectors across Australia, industry, government, consumers and the community. Our thanks to all of our guests for sharing their perspectives with us. To learn more about NAUS and our work, head to www.nausgroup.com. We'll catch you next time on NAUSCast. Thank you.